Welcome to This Week in Private Markets, a podcast by TAP. We give investors, allocators, advisors, and others a weekly digest that keeps you in the know about the news in private markets. Please see the show notes for relevant disclaimers. This is the week of August 21st, and this is what we at TAP saw in private markets. We'll start off with this week's big deals. The fintech startup Ramp raised $300 million at a valuation of $5.8 billion, which is down 28% from its last round a couple of years ago. The industrial materials maker DuPont is selling an 80% stake in its Delrin resins unit to the private equity firm TJC in a deal that values the business at about $1.8 billion. The UK-based alternative asset management firm Hafen raised over $6 billion for their direct lending fund, Four. And now let's get into this week's main stories. We'll start with what is arguably the biggest news this week, which is the SEC's highly anticipated ruling on a new uh, code of conduct for private funds. There's some surprises in there, some standardizations of things that were already commonplace, um, some victories for private fund managers, um, really a lot of stuff. What stuck out to you guys? This is the biggest news this week for sure. The SEC coming in and passing the most major regulation of the private funds industry since uh, Dodd-Frank. I mean, we could go over all the individual provisions. They touch every part of uh, the, the private funds industry and as well as the hedge fund, uh, hedge fund part of the industry as well. Um, but, you know, the stuff that stuck out to me, the stuff that's actually substantive is the things related to side letters. So side letters are these agreements that LPs sign um, when they get into a new fund um, on the on the side, and typically these have been something that is completely private. Um, but what the SEC has done here is required that they be disclosed to the rest of the fund, which can de- definitely change behavior. This is a sort of a watered down version of what they originally had been proposing. They had been proposing more, basically getting rid of side letters, and you know not allowing them to basically be able to uh, be in effect. They've done that with a couple types of. Uh, terms and side letters, specifically redemption rights and preferential treatment in terms of information during the fundraise. But other than that, they've uh, basically said that side letters are fine. You just need to disclose them, which I think will change behavior greatly. Um, That's the biggest piece to come out of this. There's a bunch of other things that are kind of important. I think the overall headline that they are stepping in to, to provide more regulation is uh, is the other big piece. But the side letters is kind of the one thing that's stuck in there that I think will actually have a big change in how the industry operates. Yeah, though, I, aren't they only supposed to disclose side letters now if they're sort of financially or economically significant, I think is the new standard? I mean, yeah, I, but I, mean, I don't really know that- what that means, to be honest. I, I, you know, we, we need a lawyer to sort of, uh, you know, think this through or we need to see how this sort of plays out in, in real life. Right. Um, I don't really know what you know economic significance here means for a side letter. Um, so anyway, it seems like there, there's some kind of an out at least here. We're going to be arguing over what's economically or financially significant, you know, for for years. Um, you know, into I mean, the- in my opinion, and I'm not a lawyer in this, and I think we can go read the real the actual rule. And usually, they do spell out how this type of thing is supposed to be interpreted, and you can see generally how it's supposed to work. But I mean, if you are changing the fees for one investor versus another, that seems like it should be economically significant. I think my guess is they were probably trying to eliminate, you know, anything where you were signing something that really didn't affect the economics for anyone at all. It was just sort of uh, some some things that your firm needed signed uh, for regulatory reasons or something like that, but didn't really affect the economics that you received versus everyone else. It, is this going to make it harder to fundraise? 
I mean, we were just sort of covering a story about you know GPs giving you know discounts on fees or sharing management fees. I, I, I got to imagine there's been some you know side letter chicanery as well um, to encourage you know folks to re up into funds. So I mean, well, I, I feel like people aren't really talking too much about what impact this might have on fundraising. It could have an impact on fundraising for sure. Um, this is how you used to attract the biggest checks into your fund was through offering them better fees. And now I do think it's going to be pretty unpalatable to publish your side letter with someone to the rest of the fund. That doesn't seem like it's going to be something that you're going to want to do. Hey, we gave this bigger guy. So I think, you know, it was pretty typical in a fundraise before to have some classes, you know, where you kind of had, Hey, look, you know, for the early folks, we're going to give, you know, lower fees than for the later folks. So that's nice. I mean, I think, and that's obviously allowed by the way this is set up as long as you disclose it, but anything where you were really kind of trying to make some sort of more inside deal um, or maybe co-investment rights, I think that could be in jeopardy with this uh, this particular provision of what they passed. I don't know. What, what stuck out for you, Adam, is the most prevalent? I, I mean, it's, you know, it, look, it, it seems fair, right? I mean, like you should have, you should have equal, you know, preference with respect to redemptions, right? And and fees. I mean, like every dollar is, is worth the same as any other dollar that's committed. I mean, obviously they want to preserve these relationships. Um so look, I mean, I, with with the bigger LPs that is. So look, I mean, I think I agree with you. Um, it seems like this could change behavior. It seems like it could have an impact on on fundraising. Um, so that's probably the biggest the biggest overhaul. Um, but I mean, generally, you know, and I think we mentioned this last time. You know, disclosing fees and performance reports, and um, you know, doing annual audits. I mean, this is all just kind of you know best in class fund management, you know, already, it just seems it's been it's been codified. Um, I, I guess I'm curious, you know, um, it seems a lot of the pushback on on the ban on side letters was sort of around, uh, it was an argument around, you know, executive agency overreach, you know, um, and if you, you know, if you can ban them, then perhaps you're overreaching. If you only ban certain provisions within signed letters, you're not overreaching. I guess I'm not really convinced by that. Um, I think you're going to see um, this this litigated. Surely, even at this point, I think you know choosing what you uh, what as a federal agency you can ban or or not um, seems to be sort of um, I don't know. It doesn't seem like it's something you can pick and choose. To be honest, um, so I think you know this certainly isn't the last we've heard of of, of, of the impact these rules. Yeah, there was a there was a part there was a part of the rulemaking that was like uh, in the rule it says. The SEC has the authority to make these rules. And then they have a whole several pages where they talk about, you know, what their opening sally is in this uh, fight that's coming up. One thing I wanted to note about this is so some of the article, some of the news agencies covered this in different ways. The ones who were more pro private equity, they all covered this as private funds suit up for lawsuits, basically, is how they covered it. It was not like, oh, this is done. This is said and done. They covered right. it as like, this is the start. This is the start of the fight. And then um, some other ones covered in a more neutral way, like, you know, just here's what the SEC passed. But the ones I found interesting were the ones that were like, SEC regulates shadow banking industry, the rich guys in private equity. And just to see that sort of narrative play out and I think that the SEC scores a lot of points on this with uh, with sort of the 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 larger inside of the larger political uh, agenda. I think that they get a lot of the, the private industry is easy to paint. These private funds are easy to paint in a bad light. 
Yeah, totally. I mean, re- Republicans and Democrats alike love to bash private equity, right? I mean, they're like the the constituency you love to bash because it's a bunch of rich guys in suits, right? I mean, it's it's very politically um, popular um, to have these positions, right? Um, so, look, I, I'm all for transparency. I, like, I, as long as people know the rules, right, and, and people are transparent about the rules, if people want to contract privately, I, I, I'm no administrative law expert. I can't tell you how the Supreme Court's going to rule on executive overreach here. But, you know, at the end of the day, these are private contracts. And, you know, I, I think if you're putting money into an investment and, you know, there are, there are material things you don't know, look, it, it seems fair to me. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess we'll sort of see how this plays out. So you do think it's going to the Supreme Court then? Yeah, totally. This is a, this is a great one for the, you know, for the 6-3 majority to to squash, I think. Uh, <laughs> they, you know, they're, they're, they're more small government, um, you know, less executive overreach. Generally speaking, I'm not going to, you know, make a political statement here. Right. Um, so this is their, you know, this is probably um, a way to help out their, their buddies and, you know, and, and sort of ideologically generally consistent, I would say, with what they've done. Well, interesting. You know, this was a split decision within the SEC. You know, this was 3-2 within the vote yesterday that the SEC passed. And uh, just one note on sort of the procedures of this is that most of the things in there, it, it does vary by the size of the fund and all that. But most of the things, they have a 60-day uh, uh, period. Well, they have a 365-day be- basically period before they go and you are required to comply with them. Uh, for some things, it, it changes based on different provisions, so you should look it up. But generally, there's about a year to, to start compliance with this, which is just pretty fast. But um, yeah, I, it, it is a very interesting um, uh, thing that, that that has come down the pike here and just interesting to see how everyone's reacting to it. Yeah, no, totally. Just, I mean, just legally, right? I mean, it's it raises a lot of interesting questions um, for our, you know, legal nerd listeners, if you're out there, but we'll see how it goes. Oh, they're out there. All right, let's move on to the next topic. Subway is sold to Rourke Capital for nearly $10 billion. Um, of course, everyone's heard of Subway. Not everyone knows how massive it is. They have 37,000 locations worldwide, an absolutely unbelievable number. Um, Rourke is I'm a- just shocked by that. Sorry. Yeah, right. I, I totally agree. 37,000 Subways. I mean, what? No one needs 37,000 of anything. I mean, that's just crazy. Well, anyway. I don't know. I, I, you know, I'm, I've always been a, I, I actually like Subway. I'm one of the few people, you know, who go on a limb and say that. I, I like a good sub of also. I just don't know if Subway's, you know, <laughs> the, premier, the premier subs, you know, globally. Um, I think it shows you the power of the franchising model that yes. you can have that many, right? It's not like they chose to have that many. It's there's so many people out there who want to build a small business with this sort of within this sort of framework at Subway that you end up getting 37,000 of them. Yeah. Look, I, I mean, just kind of looking at some of the stats here, look, it, you know, I, I spent sort of years restructuring these, you know, absolutely dying, you know, retail businesses with thousands of locations. And, um, you know, to see, you know, 9.85% increase in same, same store sales for, you know, a, a sort of brick and mortar type business like this is is extremely impressive. I also can't believe these guys have $800 million of EBITDA. Um, also incredibly impressive, although, you know, I'd love to sort of dig into that accounting. Um, so look, by all means, it, it seems like whatever footprint they've rationalized, 
by closing down, you know, thousands of locations and probably preserving, uh, you know, the, the best locations, it seems to be having a, a pretty good impact. Um, and, you know, these, these subways chains aren't cannibalizing themselves and, you know, foot traffic is increasing. So look, I don't know, it might be a good, this might be a good trade for Rourke. Um, there's probably additional store footprint rationalization they can do. Um, I mean, is this a nine or $10 billion company? I, I have no idea, but I mean, it's, it seems to generate a ton of cash flow and they seem to have a, a pretty good plan as to how to decrease their store count and, you know, boost EBITDA and, you know, boost margin and profitability and things like that. So it'll be interesting. The other thing that surprised me, I had no idea this was like a private family owned business. I, if you had asked me, just given there's 37,000 of these, I would have been like, yeah, Subway, that's, you know, a public company, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I thought I, I was also surprised. Yeah. I see. They seem like they'd be right up there with McDonald's with that that uh, number of locations. Yeah, well, Rourke knows what they're doing here. You know, they are the owners of a bunch of other of these chains, you know, Arby's and Auntie Ons, Buffalo Wild Wings, you know, Sonic and, and a bunch of other ones as well. Um, so it's interesting to see. I mean, you know, the, we, we had talked a few weeks ago about how if one private equity firm owns all the different players in a certain space, does that sort of lock it down? I mean, this is this is getting there. I mean, all, with all these names, this is sort of the. I mean, I don't know between Arby's and Subway, who else is there to to go and get a sandwich, right? Uh, these days, I don't know. You got to go to your local local Rourke um, outlet to to get your sandwich. Arby's is is what it's the 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 beef the beef roast beef sandwiches. What are they? They've selling? got the meats. Yeah, that's that's their He's slogan. I can't say no, I've ever been to one. Die forever, man. <laughs> Anyway, we'll, we'll see how this goes. If there's someone to buy all your, you know, your store chains, and it's it's definitely work. Um, then you know, you know, I guess we'll see if there's any kind of antitrust implications associated with this. I think it's interesting with the with franchises because you can see here, like they're, when they're talking about this, they talk about it. Well, we want it to be a win 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 for the customers, for, but the franchisees are an important part of this. And uh, we're going to cover. We I see on the docket we have this story later that we're going to cover on um, on the music industry, and it's just interesting to see when you acquire these businesses that have tons and tons of stakeholders. Uh, in this case, the franchisees. You know, it's a big. You're managing a, a large number of people that you're dealing with here that you don't want to piss off, and sort of this activism that can occur is something you need to watch out for in this type of acquisition that they're doing. Yeah, yeah that, that's actually a great complicating factor. I mean, I, I don't really know how. You know, presumably in your franchise, you know, franchise or franchisee agreement, you know, you have some, you must have some outs around change of control and, and change of ownership and things like that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I suspect work wants as many as many people who franchise this business to to get out as possible um, and make the store footprint more manageable. Uh, obviously, if the store is doing well, you know, it, it is a win win. Um, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see their interaction with you know all of these stakeholders. Presumably, at least thirty seven thousand stakeholders here. Um, that they have yeah. to deal with in God, a hundred countries. I mean, yeah, good luck. I feel bad for the lawyers and the bankers who were in that <laughs> data room reviewing uh, reviewing those agreements. All right, let's move on to our next story. Blackstone is coming out with a private equity fund for retail investors. Um, the fund will start taking subscriptions in the fourth quarter of this year, and it's planned to launch in January. Um, of course, raising money from retail investors, high net worth individuals is is all the rage right now, and Blackstone has been taking part of that in that as well. Um, of course, they've had some hiccups as well with their uh, you know having to limit redemptions in their flagship property fund uh, late last year. 
Yeah, I mean, they've been this 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 issue has been uh, recurring for them. I mean, they when they started this fund, BXPE, um, which is sort of the private equity strategies fund, it's for high net worth individuals. When they started it, uh, they actually kind of paused launching it for a little while because of this BREIT thing. So, you know, for folks who weren't keeping up with that, BREIT is sort of a retail focused. Uh, real estate fund that Blackstone has uh, launched that last year, um, I think it has $70 billion in unlisted, um, you know, real estate income, uh, real estate stuff. And, and uh, they have a redemption mechanism that allowed you to redeem, redeem up to 5%. And they hit that cap last year, everyone was really trying to sell. And ever since they've basically been not allowing anyone to sell out of that. So this partial liquidity mechanism that they worked out on BREIT did not function uh, at all. And in fact, I, I think there's this sort of aspect to this that when you put the 5% limit on there, it's you know a game of musical chairs. Who wants to be this, the person who's the last person to get out, right? So everyone wants to get out first. So it's kind of like you need to have unlimited liquidity to have any liquidity because having a little bit of liquidity will instantly get hit the moment anything goes wrong or the marks seem wrong. And so, I mean, look, they're going forward with basically the same setup, it seems. Um, here with uh, the the private equity version of this, where they have this five percent um, uh, limit, like top out to the limit, uh, but that'll be you know I, I think that they will see see demand on this um, regardless. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to say my money's with Blackstone. Certainly, um, you know, there's there's a lot of cachet around the name, obviously, um, and you know, I don't think. I don't think these retail investors are thinking, oh, wow, they really mucked up those B-REIT redemptions. You know, I mean, look. I think they totally are, man. I feel think like, so? Yeah, absolutely. Know. Well, People first of all, the advice, well, think about it. anyone who is in B-REIT, the $70 billion that are in B-REIT, a lot of them probably were trying to sell. And this is it's, not it's the, the, it's the rule. Expected. 5% is the rule. You knew the rule. They didn't just know the rule. Everyone, you know, no one, no one runs a, the rule. They said, just because oh, there's a run on the bank doesn't mean, you know, you should be allowed to run have a run on the bank. I mean, you know. The 5% is what causes the run on the bank, in my opinion. Now, if you actually have liquidity built in and it, to, the, to the entity itself, then people can sell infinitely and, and it's all fine. And then no one wants to sell. But the way that this thing was structured really encouraged people to be the first ones to sell because some people that get, did get their money out. I mean, I do think it may, I think liquidity is a huge difference maker to, to this clientele and to RIAs. And the fact that they have a proof point that liquidity did not work out on the last one immediately definitely causes issues with that aspect of the pitch. I, I think it's still do fine, but that aspect of the pitch, they've got no credibility on it right now. I'm a, I mean, I'm a liquidity for all guy. You know, I mean, I look, I think their clients should be allowed to look. If if you if you can't sell because you've hit the five percent cap of NAV, then you know you should have the freedom to sell below NAV, right? Join tap, sell your sell your sell your BX funds below NAV. I mean, look, I <laughs> some, some some trade at, at at NAV, some some don't, obviously. So I mean, look, I I think um, more liquidity options is never a bad thing, right? I mean, things trade at a price. They, sometimes they trade at a high price, sometimes at a low price, sometimes at nav. Um, but so, I mean, I agree with you, Jeff. I mean, I think, you know, liquidity is 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 prized and it will be prized even more so for these types of investors. Um, so, you know, I guess we'll see. Hopefully they've developed perhaps a better mousetrap here, although it, it doesn't seem so. Doesn't look like they've changed the mousetrap yeah. and they know it's broken. I mean, and, and I get it. They were halfway through a fund launch. 
Let's just finish it off. I mean, obviously us at TAP, we do think there's a better way where you, you make things actually liquid and you you let them actually, the, the prices move around, which is the, the key part of liquidity. And I think you see, I mean, there's a reason why they did this with the retail things. Like the retail investors are the ones who need it. And um, and they're gonna we're going to figure out a way to do this. I do. I don't mean even the royal. I mean, I mean, we probably at TAP are going to figure out a way to do this. But if not us, hopefully someone else is going to figure out a way to make these things liquid so that they can open up in a big way to the to the RAA and wealth manager and high net worth segment generally. Agree with that completely. All right. Let's move on to the next topic. The mortgage tech company Better.com is finally going public via a SPAC. Um, they've had many delays. They've been on a wild ride. Um, I think they currently have around 1,300 employees, which is down about 90% from where they were in 2020. They lost $900 million, uh, last year. And with this back, they're raising $550 million in fresh capital. So I, I don't know if this will give them another five months of runway or if this, you know, <laughs> if the business is really on solid yeah. footing now. I laughed a few times reading sort of the news around this. I mean, I sort of had three, maybe two or three thoughts. I mean, first of all, like I couldn't really find a lot of publicity around this. You know, if you're in national mortgage news and housing wire and a couple more obscure trade journals, I mean, and it's your IPO or not your IPO, but rather you're going public, then you, you're really sort of like the company the, the world forgot. So sorry, better. I mean, you know, obviously a lot of bad news around around them that probably gave them more more publicity than than going public here actually has. Yeah, they wanted they, they probably wanted to keep the publicity to a minimum. I mean, the stock was down 93% on the on the first day. They probably right. knew they knew that something like this might happen and maybe we don't want to make a lot of noise as part of it. And the other thing is, I mean, like SPAC, SPACs just got a SPAC at some point. You, either you, you unwind the SPAC or you just you force it a really, really ugly deal. Um, mm -hmm. and it seems like they just decided to go forward with a really, really ugly deal. Well, you know, can I, can I have a brief aside here? Yeah. Do we feel like SPACs are, uh, that SPACs are, are like, this is an example of a new SPAC. It seems like they're sticking around. They seem like a better way to go public in a lot of ways, but does it, do the incentives of doing them lead to more outcomes like this than not? What do you think, Adam? Well, I mean, clearly the average, you know, public company that SPAC'd is just generally a much worse company than a company that, you know, files an S1 and stands on its own merits or a company that direct lists, right? Which is kind of, uh, you know, we're, we're such a hot company. We don't even need your money. We don't need an IPO banker. We're, we're just going to trade, right? So um, yeah, I look, I don't think there's anyone in, on this planet um, unless, you know, they're getting fees from advising on, on, a, on a SPAC merger or, you know, they're the SPAC sponsors themselves um, that would say, this is clearly the best crop of companies going public, right? So, but look, that that doesn't necessarily mean those companies should not go public, right? Perhaps this is an avenue for, you know, the lesser, you know, performing entities to go public, provide liquidity. Um, and then I don't know, I guess you got to deal with all the headaches of actually being public then, but I guess you you got liquidity and, and perhaps you got some some publicity around your name, right? I, I We talk about this a lot about the sort of diminishing merits of actually going public. Mm -hmm. um, so besides, you know, sort of ultimate liquidity, um, you know, I don't know what I don't want us to SPAC. If we ever if we ever go public, I hope it's in an IPO, right? I, <laughs> I don't want to be associated with that. So um look. Okay, so what are your other what are your other two points that you that takeaways from the better going public? Um, man, what were they? 
I don't know. <laughs> I, look, it just, it's just a bad company, man. Like, I don't know. I mean, SoftBank, like, it's just, it just got bad written all over it. You know, I mean, this article was saying the funds will rejuvenate, or I think one of the quotes from the company, the funds will rejuvenate the firm. I mean, will they? Uh, I mean, <laughs> maybe. I, well, they, well, I mean, look, I mean, they're obviously going through a difficult time in the market. They said that yeah. they were doing 90 per, 90% refi work, you know, when interest yeah. rates are low. Now they're doing 90% purchases. And, and just in general, the market is the real estate market is obviously seized up a bit. They they said here they went from their headcount went from 10,000 people to now basically 1,000 people. So they did a 90% headcount reduction, which is, to be honest, kind of like, I mean, good on them, right? A lot of people would not have the, the guts to do that. And I mean, I don't know if you remember, but they were famous for the CEO going on and and yep. uh, firing via Zoom when that was considered a weird thing, but firing via Zoom. and But he, he cried and he 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 made some interesting comments or something like that. It was a whole big story about him. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I interviewed with him years ago, actually. This must have been like 2016. I was trying to, you know, do the startup thing, which, you know, I'm still trying to do, obviously. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, look, he was a totally pleasant guy. But I kind of I love this quote from him, something like, we're really excited to be bringing better.com public in, you know, a terrible real estate market. Period. I mean, are you? But why? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense to me. I, I thought there were, there had to be more of the quote, right? And, and there really wasn't. So, look, I, I don't know. I, I think this is at the end of the day a SPAC kind of running its lease, um, and you know they found something that you know maybe they maybe it works out at the end of the day, and you know probably doesn't. But um, they didn't have to give. Well, money. So they raised they raised five hundred and sixty five million dollars in this. Uh, you know what when they did this back, yep. right? Yep. But now they've fallen ninety percent. So. I mean, wow, that that's really bad performance for the for the SPAC, right? I mean, good for good for better, right? I mean, they got five hundred sixty million dollars for the price of fifty six. You know, really in reality, yeah, their yeah, market kudos, cap kudos now is that marketing team. I mean, uh, that market cap, team market cap now is two hundred and twenty million. I think Ooh, not even worth the cash <laughs> on your balance sheet. <laughs> no. is, that, does, is that is that the truth? I mean, we got to look into that. But are they actually worth less than the the cash on your balance sheet? Is that what this is? Or or I know they had a really big loss last year. Well, yeah, because they're. They're having they're running huge losses. Last year they had a really big loss. Um, so maybe that's what it is. They're worth less than the cash in their balance sheet. That's is, a bad sign. You know that's I think it's a bankruptcy in the not so distant future. There you go. But right. hey, look, the sponsors got their fees. Someone, <laughs> someone that's right. That's all and they that make matters. the fees. They make the fees on the, you know, people make fees on the bankruptcy too. So totally. I, I bet you, you know. Places like Evercore, you know, will double dip here. Uh, they did this back, and then they'll do the bankruptcy. Um, you, got then, the, you got the you got the 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 IPO team telling you, oh, you guys are worth a lot, and then you got the the bankruptcy team telling you, look, you got you're not worth anything. By the way, we get paid first in uh, bankruptcy court always. Um, All right, guys, let's move on to our last story here. BMI, one of the two main music rights organizations in the U.S., is considering selling itself. Um, Apparently, they've tried a few times, but now they're in conversations with New Mountain Capital uh, for a rumored $1.7 billion. Um, Basically, what BMI does is that they kind of collect the licensing fees for music. They have a catalog of over 20 million songs, musical works. Um, and then they basically pay those royalties out to um, songwriters. And this potential PE acquisition has songwriters now concerned about what might happen to their royalties and uh, ownership of uh, all their musical work. Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting because these 
BMI and there's one other one of these music rights firms are the two largest players in the market. And they've really been considered completely plumbing historically. You know, BMI was nonprofit until recently and now it's for profit. To be honest, I haven't looked into the business model. I have no idea what it means for this business to be for profit. I don't know how their business model works because when they're nonprofit, basically what they do is they negotiate deals for royalties. They, they, on behalf of the artists, they have operating expenses. They take out the operating expenses. They pass on the rest as distributions directly as royalties to these artists, which makes a lot of sense. And I think it was really important what they were doing. Somehow they converted to from a nonprofit to a for-profit and now they're selling themselves right on the back of that. Um, I don't really know how their business model actually works. And the only way I can imagine it working is some way that is definitely detrimental to the, the artists in this case, right? Because at some point... BMI has to be on the other side where they're saying, okay, well, if we could take a bigger spread between what we collect and what we yeah. pay out. And obviously that's bad for the artists. That, that quote unquote for profit has to come out of somewhere. And I guess it's to the tune of, you know, $1.7 billion. Um, I just keep thinking about body mass index when, when I read. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, look, the, the, these are, inf- these are almost just like infrastructure companies, right? I mean, like you yes. said, this is, this is plumbing. Um, this is almost like a public good for, you know, the, the continued enjoyment and preservation uh, uh, and, and sustainability of our, you know, music, right. Of, of our, of our country's music and, and heritage and, and everything. So, I mean, um, is it, is it a really interesting kind of arbitrage play too? I mean, do you, do you go from being not a nonprofit with, with seemingly, um, you know, no excess free cash flow, I, I guess. And then, um, you, you turn yourself into for-profit and then you're worth, you know, nearly $2 billion. I wonder if this is like kind of interesting, you know, kind of private equity, um, you know, arbitrage. Right. Go out there. It's, it's a new way to source some deals. Go out and find some nonprofits who you could turn into for-profits. Yeah. I mean, Just charge a little bit more. Open AI was a, Open AI was founded as a nonprofit, and they converted to a for-profit. I, I mean, I can't really believe that you're allowed to to do this, where you you convert. In it doesn't make sense. In this case, I, I think it doesn't really make sense because, well, interestingly, before who owned BMI on the other side, even though it was a nonprofit, it wasn't the artists who owned it. It was the the labels that the the agencies, labels that type of thing that uh, that was a consortium. They owned it in their side. They were also most of the folks who were paying the royalties. So it was kind of like a consortium where they were all doing this for each other. And that makes a lot of sense. Now they're, they've put someone in the middle here who can probably raise the prices and reduce the distributions out to the, uh, to the underlying artists without the labels and stuff getting blamed as much as they would have before. So um, it's, it's definitely, I, I mean, I, I'm not really happy to see how this is playing out right now, um, considering you know, how, the important part that these folks played and kind of the trust that artists put in the fact that this is a nonprofit and now that's changing on them. Yeah, look, I, I think this is a this is closer to a public good in my mind than a, than a for-profit business. Um, so, I don't know, interesting. Not, not a world I know much about, to be honest, um, but an interesting headline from this week. Absolutely. Okay, guys, let's wrap it up there. This has been another week of news and private markets and... We'll see you again in another week. Bye.